This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Gotkin, and in this episode, the world's biggest cheerleader for Israeli tech declined to invest in Salesforce's seed round. But with his crowdfunding platform, Our Crowd, John Medved wants to make sure ordinary investors have the opportunity to make the same kind of mistakes. My friend Mark Benioff, who came to me with a seed funding opportunity for Salesforce, and uh, I rejected the investment because I was being a serious venture capitalist. It was like 100 million free. And I thought that was excessive for a, uh, a seed valuation based on a, a PowerPoint, even for someone talented like Mark. Boy, was I wrong. Okay. You know. John Medved, founder and CEO of Our Crowd. Welcome to the Tech podcast. It's great to be here, Elliot. Thank you. Thanks. So, um, how's how's it going for you? You know, you're you're in Israel. You're under lockdown. Um, have you had your first? Have you been vaccinated already? H- how are things going for you? Uh, you know, the suffering is pretty obvious out there, and it's horrible being locked down. And uh, the fact that I can't travel, and I'm a you know, a, a you know road a road warrior among the best of them. Um, these are all difficult. But on the other hand. Digital businesses like our crowd are booming. We had a record year. Last year, we uh, raised more money than ever before. We uh, added investors actually at like a 200% uh, increase from year to year because it seems as though uh, while the pandemic hasn't been good for human health, it's been really good for digital health. And uh, we are seeing digital transformation at an unprecedented rate. Okay. Well, I want to come back to the business in in a little bit, but uh, I mean... Anything we talk about, you talk about investment right now. I mean, uh, this will probably go out a few weeks hence. Uh, I'm sure we'll still be talking about it then. The whole GameStop side. I mean, what, 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 what on earth is going on right now on the markets? Uh, do you uh, do you kind of find it entertaining to see what's going on with GameStop and AMC and all these other kind of things that are kind of going crazy as a result of Reddit forums and the like? I, I think that this is uh, get ready, you know, for the new normal. This is not going to be a one-of uh, episode, right? In other words, uh, I think the social media meets the investment world was something that actually surprised me about how long it took for it really to uh, close the loop. I mean, given the fact that um, now there are millions of people who are being empowered to invest, small investors, on platforms like Robinhood and others to put them together on social media and begin to, you know, essentially collaborate and move stocks as a unit. I mean, you know, I don't think any regulator ever foresaw that. I don't know exactly what the uh, law says about it, but it's, I think, going to be until, you know, made uh, illegal, it's going to be part of our uh, uh, our landscape forever. And mm. I, I think that, you know, I, I, I think it's really turning out to be pretty hard to be a short seller in the face of these guys. And, uh, 
But what it reflects, again, is a larger phenomena of the democratization of investing, right? In other words, uh, until now, investments have really been stratified, hierarchical. The bigger you are, the more access and inside. That's especially true for private markets, right? Private markets have been locked down, you know, not just during Corona, but they've been locked down forever, okay? Because people couldn't get in and, and invest in venture capital or private companies. And I think that this is now uh, all going to be opened up. And, and that's a good thing, I think, long-term. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with the, you know, wild swings, okay, that are engendered from this, because I don't think any market regulator or, or market maker ever foresaw this coming. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I remember when I started writing in uh, financial news, uh, you would still get times when stocks would move. And it's because, you know, uh, certain analysts had been briefed by the company and, and the rest of the market didn't know, obviously, that changed. And I guess this is kind of, you know, several steps removed from that kind of going full circle where, you know, not only is information now democratized, but also the access is becoming more democratized. Just curious to know, John, I mean, did you, I, I tried to buy some GameStop via my Revolut app, it was rejected, but I did see them getting all excited about silver. So I bought a little bit of silver, like 20 ounces or something, uh, and I went up 4%, 5%. Once you've got fees in, I think I'm up three pounds right now. So um, what, did, did you, did you, did, did you uh, kind of try and jump on the bandwagon at all? No, I, look, I've got enough risk in my day job um, that I don't need to trade silver. I do have a very upset son, by the way, who when he asked me you know, about a month ago what I thought of AMC, because he thought it was really low. And I said, look, I think the company is going to potentially, you know, go out of business because how are you going to finance it? I think that the virus mm -hmm. is going to be longer. Well, he's sort of upset with me now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll perhaps I'll use some of my three pound uh, winnings to uh, cheer him up or something. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I mean, in terms of I mean, I, I think when I spoke to you uh, when I when you first op uh, started our crowd, several years ago and I remember chatting to you and I think you told me that you managed to get in early on on Twitter um, I think you told me that you put it before it was uh, made public I was wondering what what for you was your kind of best personal uh, investment did, did you ever no, get no, anything actually, that went up several we, thousand percent we, like that I, I wish we were in Twitter we were not in Twitter no I, I was a personal investor in lending club right which, you know was one of the the great hits of uh, fintech in the early days you know, I got in on the seed round there, uh, you know, at, at, at literally, you know, just uh, a few million dollars. And the thing went up, uh, you know, to about nine billion at its peak. So that was a, a very nice uh, angel investment I made. But at our crowd, you know, we're pretty excited about the fact that we actually provided private access to the two best performing IPOs of, of 2019 and of 2020. So in 2019, the best performing IPO was a complete surprise for most people, a company called Beyond Meat, okay, where veggie burgers rule the world. And it's not just veggie burgers, it's plant-based meat today, you know, in a broad sense. And that company, you know, uh, we invested in before it went public. And then the other one is, uh, I think, a company you know, because I think you've had him as a guest, which is Daniel Schreiber's Lemonade. And we were... Uh, early investors there, relatively at least, not as early as I would have liked, but early enough. And, uh, you know, I had backed Daniel before in a prior venture company, you know, almost two decades ago. So I knew how talented and brilliant he is, thought the idea was great and the execution great. So we piled in and I think we invested 
you know, north of $10 million in that company. Uh, and uh, that was the best per performing IPO of 2020. So I can't guarantee that we're going to get the best performing IPO of 2021, but I sure hope so. Sure. Yeah. And of course, uh, for those listening to this, uh, the very first podcast uh, on the FNTech podcast was with uh, Daniel Schreiber, co-founder and CEO of Lemonade. Um, but I mean, I know, you know, it, it's hard to ever uh, catch you, it seems, at least in public at a, at a kind of down moment. I'm just wondering what the most challenging parts of, of lockdown and the whole kind of coronavirus pandemic uh, has been both for you personally and for our crowd as a business. So, look, I, this is not my first rodeo. Um, by far, I've, I've been in this business in Israel before there was a business. I mean, my first startup, uh, was a company, uh, in fiber optic communications where I raised money here in Israel when there was not a single venture capital fund. So for those who don't know me, that means I'm an old guy, but I don't feel old. Um, but I've got a lot of experience and I've been there at downturns in 87 and downturns in, uh, 2000 and, uh, eight and seven and uh, downturns in the year 2000. And when this crisis broke, we were battening down the hatches, you know, putting all of our wagons in a, in, in a circle. I mean, you, you choose your metaphor, but basically we were worried and, and we're focused on survival. But very, very quickly, uh, you know, fear gave way to greed because we began to realize that while this was a huge challenge you know, personally and at the family level and health level and, and just, you know, not seeing the light of day and being able to go out and breathe fresh air. Uh, it was a huge business opportunity because tons of the businesses that we had been investing in for the last decade who had been predicting that someday telemedicine would be a big thing. Guess what? They exploded. People who are predicting work from home would become an alternative. They exploded. Remote education exploded. E-commerce went completely ballistic. Okay. And so all of a sudden we weren't in survival mode. We were grab market share, raise more money, you know, and, and make money in this uh, increasingly bullish market. So, you know, the, the difficulty that I, that I faced personally was, you know, just being separated from my grandkids and stuff. Uh, I've got nine grandchildren and, um, we spend typically a lot of time with them. And uh, during periods of the lockdown when we, we couldn't see them, uh, this was hard. You know, I, I, I sort of longed for, you know, squeezing them and, you know, pinching their cheeks and doing sort of grandfatherly kinds of things. And like everybody else, that was hard to do without. Sure, of course. Um, but I mean, uh, again, you're, you're a very, you know, uh, uh, ebullient uh, person anyone who's been around you very uh, gregarious so so i guess that must have also uh, been hard uh, and of course you're also i mean you, you said you're an old guy i know just uh, which which of course uh, you don't feel but i mean you are kind of part of the furniture now on the israeli tech scene in the sense that you've been around almost <laughs> I, since I, anyone I can like the word furniture imagine one of those sofas with you know the kind of hawaiian prints on them that's the kind of uh, yeah. piece of furniture i'm talking about but look there was obviously the point i'm trying to make is there was obviously a journey uh, that got you here you didn't just suddenly you know roll out of bed one morning and and you know be be running our crowd um so perhaps you can take us back in time not necessarily you know from from when baby medved uh, emerged uh, but but i mean what like just to get a sense of the of the background and the events that kind of shaped you 
on your way. You grew up in you grew up in California. I grew up in California. I'm a product of the '60s. Was born at the top of the baby boom. Uh, went to Berkeley. You know, was a college rebel. Uh, you, studied, you studied you studied history, right? Which kind of reminds me always reminds me of the Avenue Q song about what do you do with a BA in English? You know, I've got a BA in geography. You've got a BA in history. So, uh, so I'm a venture capitalist. That. And by the way, this is now you know, uh, a, a thing in the Valley where they're looking for people with liberal arts because people with liberal arts usually can think and can, uh, you know, write and uh, uh, express ideas. And everybody today is tech friendly because you can't live without it. But basically, I, I got my break in the technology world uh, in that first startup I was talking about a second ago together with my dad, uh, an old Jewish tradition called nepotism. And he showed up in Israel after I had moved here from California with pretty much not a penny to my name. And I was hanging out in the old city and I was leading some unofficial tours and doing all kinds of sort of fun, but not particularly, uh, uh, you know, strong in the money making department things. And he uh, asked me to drive him up to a meeting with some guys who were interested in his, at that time, nascent fiber optic company, which had six people crammed into our family's home's basement in Santa Monica. And uh, I took him up at this meeting and he starts explaining to these guys from Raphael, which is the missile uh, development authority, the guys behind uh, Iron Dome, what he was doing. And they got excited and they looked like they were doing business. I couldn't understand a word they were talking about because they were speaking about signal to noise ratio and harmonic distortion and the different kinds of fiber optic you know, transmission. And finally, at the end of this meeting, where I was pretty much bored to tears, uh, one of the guys turns to me and says, okay, young Medved, what do you do? And I told him, and he looked at me and said, total waste. And I said, what? You know, I'm here. I'm, I'm fulfilling the Zionist dream. I'm living in Israel. Why, you know, why aren't you welcoming me and dancing the aura? And uh, he looked at me and said, look, we need guys like your dad. We don't need more guys like you. And I, on the way home, I said, Dad, will you tell me what you do? And by the time he had finished his week in Israel, he had agreed to uh, pay me the lordly sum of $100 a month, which covered about two-thirds of my rent at the time. Rents weren't what they are today. And uh, I began to build his business. And I found that I loved business and I loved technology. And I never looked back. And you were in uh, marketing and sales, I think, in some of your early incarnations and then in in 1995 you you kind of went solo and founded israel seed partners is that yeah well that... i founded it together with uh uh two partners really neil cohen and uh, michael eisenberg uh later a guy named alan fell joined us and we the the four of us have all gone on plus many others who were part of us to really have a i think a major impact on the israeli venture world we were all anglo immigrants uh, but we were very early. This was, you know, in the uh, early 90s. And we started off with the first seed fund year. I think we raised a, a grand total of like two and a half million in the first closing dollars, that is. And then we grew that to 100 fold to about 260 million uh, over the decade that we were together. And that was a great run. We backed a ton of smart people, including people like Daniel Schreiber and others. Uh, and uh, then I went back to go build another startup called Vringo, which was a, a video sharing company, which I got public in New York, uh, successfully made money, exited there. And then in 2012, decided that I would 
try to build this, you know, new platform called our crowd. Well, before we come back to to our crowd, I mean, uh, Israel Seed Partners, I guess, perhaps was the seed, if you like, in your mind for, for, you know, our crowd at a later time. But I mean, what kind of gains, what kind of returns did you manage to get for your investors there? It, uh, you know, totally depends on the fund because, you know, funds that uh, had most of their exits before the year 2000, great. Uh, you know, funds that went into the, uh, like 1999 and 2000 were very challenged vintages. Okay. People learn in venture capital that vintage, like in wine, is critical. And, uh, you know, you could be a genius and still have barely got your money back in a 2000 vintage fund. So, um, you know, we had some great companies like uh, Shopping.com, which was bought by eBay, which we invested in before the crisis and rode it all the way through the crisis and helped save the company. And it got uh, acquired by eBay for about $640 million, which is a pittance given how important it is to eBay today. Um, and we had companies like EarthNoise, which was the first video sharing site. Some guys set up who came back from trekking in Thailand, and they wanted to share videos with their friends. And we had a half a million daily visitors in the year 2000, had hired the head of TV Guide at the time to run it. We were off to the races, and the company was wiped out uh, by the crisis. None of the other funders wanted to back it. We kept on yelling, but video is going to be big on the internet. And uh, we ultimately had to close it. And uh, about that could have been months, YouTube. And yeah, six months later, YouTube was founded. <laughs> right? You know, so timing is sort of important in our business. Right. And and did you leave because of the challenges of uh, the kind of dot com crash that perhaps uh, made uh, returning you know investors money uh, or, or helping them make money? A bit no, more I, I, I only set up uh, Ringo was two thousand and six. So by that time. You know, the markets were resurgent. It was actually even before the 2007-8 crisis. And, um, you know, I rode through that as a head of a startup doing, you know, video sharing, which I've, I've always been fascinated by video, both from my days in fiber optics where we did video transmission. I was a, you know, early investor in the MPEG leader, uh, Optibase here. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically... Uh, you know, it's difficult when you're with a bunch of really strong people to keep a partnership alive for 10 or 11 or 12 years uh, is a huge feat. OK, when you have a bunch of strong people like we were at Israel Seed. And I think Israel Seed, when the history is, is properly written, of you know, venture capital in Israel, it was a pretty exciting uh, fund in terms of, you know, who we brought together and what uh, happened there and what's happened since then to the the quartet who were, were behind it right uh, and uh um, mike eisenberg uh, I, I know very well as well of course he's a Aleph uh, founding partner there and they also invested in in lemonade among uh, among other uh, and, and Alan, companies. of course runs the the you know one of the largest fund shops in in israel called vintage right uh, and you mentioned you you went on to become ceo of ringo now i did a little I, i've never you know I've, I've heard you mention of ringo in the past i never bothered to look much into it but I mean, i'm sure you've uh, seen maybe on Wikipedia, you know, you, if you go online and look up what Ringo is, it basically tends to be described as a bit of a patent troll. Was that no, a, no, an unfair that description? The, that, was the, that was the latter, you know, sort of final chapter, which actually made us a bunch of money. But the company was just way ahead of its time. The idea was that um, when you got a phone call, that, those were back in the days when you still got phone calls, um, 
instead of just getting a regular ringtone, you would get a video ringtone. There'll be something video playing on your phone. That still hasn't taken off today. Uh, we thought it was made a lot of sense, but in particular, we thought that people should have the ability to control what you're sending to your friend when you call them. So if you're a Manchester United uh, guy and I'm a Chelsea guy and I just trounced you, you know, at the uh, uh, League Cup Football. or whatnot, I get to, you know, literally rub your nose in it as we're starting our phone call. And this was really uh, challenging technology, which we built and made work. The problem was is that um, we did this before there were iPhones and uh, it was an app and we were right about that. And then all of a sudden, you know, we got it to work on Nokia phones, but that didn't matter because the iPhone came along and Apple refused to open up their platform to this product. We were able to actually grow it on Android where it did work uh, and we got the company public. And then once we were public, uh, it was just hard to monetize and get the, you know, uh, uh, revenue that we wanted to do. So all of a sudden the board said, let's go buy something. And what we ended up buying was a company that had a lawsuit against Google, which actually won in court with a billion-dollar settlement. The stock went wild, thank God. And uh, unfortunately, that settlement was overturned in the appellate court, as things often happen. And I was long gone. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so then moving on to our crowd. I remember the time when you kind of uh, set it up. What, what was your... Was was this an idea that had been percolating in your mind for, for a while and then just all the stars finally aligned and you were able to get it off the ground? Was it you just kind of woke up and had a eureka moment one day? What was the inspiration there? So as soon as I uh, exited uh, uh, Vringo, uh, and by the way, I, I didn't manage at all Vringo as a patent troll. That wasn't... Uh, my idea of, of fun i am not i'm not into i've never uh been sued and and i'm not a, i'm not a uh a person who seeks any kind of legal conflict but i hope i always stay that way um but the uh as soon as i left vringo i went on a speaking tour and i you know from the early days my background studying history led me to sort of be a little bit of an unofficial house historian of Israeli tech miracles. And I would often give talks, which would drive some of my partners and companies crazy about the Israeli tech scene. People say, what, what are you doing that for? And I said, because that's sort of what I like to do. And, and uh, I'm a character in the book, Startup Nation, et cetera. So, you know, I, I went on this speaking tour for a couple of months because once I left, I could do whatever I wanted to. But something started to happen. This was in 2012, which was unlike anything I had seen before, is that people came up to me in flocks at the end of my speech, and not just to say, hi, thank you, it was a good talk, but to basically press a business card into my hand and say, look, you're an investor, find me some deals, and I'll be happy to join you, you know, in Israel. And I would turn to them and say, look, I don't run a fund anymore. I'm not in that business what do you want me to do with this? I said, keep it. When you have a deal, you know, get back to me. So I'm, I'm polite. I kept all these cards. They, there were a lot of them. And they actually filled up several shoe boxes after I scanned them into my network. And I started looking at these boxes. And then the next thing you know is that the uh, U.S. passed something called the Jobs Act, which wasn't uh, named after Steve Jobs. It was about jumpstarting our, you know, uh, business 
startups and it had all kinds of provisions for crowdfunding. And I said, wait a minute, maybe, you know, we could provide access to all these people who are looking for deals online and do this legally with the new uh, changes in the regulations and uh, found a way to do this. Uh, a lot of people thought I was nuts because it's too hard and, you know, too difficult from a regulatory standpoint. And that's how our crowd was, uh, was started. And uh, I remember the first time somebody came to our site, clicked the button, invested $50,000. Literally, you know, we were dancing a horror because it was like, what? This thing works. People are going to invest online in private companies. And now, you know, uh, eight years later, we're, we're managing uh, about a billion and a half of commitments. We've invested in 240 companies. We have 25 funds and we've got about 70,000 registered investors on our site. And it's growing at the moment, at least by about 5,000 new investors every month. Okay, well, don't go away, John, as I just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. In this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. You can find out more at www parisfintechforum.com. Now, back to the story, and I resumed by asking John Medved if and how our crowd today was any different from his original vision. No, well, it's, it's certainly taken a life of its own because, you know, once you get to a certain critical mass and you've got a, a, a team as talented as I've got, we're busy growing in all kinds of different ways. But I think in general, it's been remarkably consistent with the original vision, which was that for these people who met me on that speaking tour and for everybody else, uh, it's hard and has been hard to invest in the venture capital asset class. In other words, you know, the traditional venture capital fund, think of Sequoia, think of Andreessen, you know, think of Kleiner Perkins, the minimum, you know, limited partner investment checks are $5 million, $10 million. For most people, that's a little bit, you know, aspirational. And even if you have the money to do that, okay, good luck with getting in, right? There's no real room. So what you're stuck with is doing all kinds of angel investing, which is then dependent on who you know and how you get access and having to do the legal. And, and then the language of venture capital is rather esoteric. I mean, most people know what, you know, preferred stock is and preemptive rights and, you know, anti-dilution protection. So, the uh, the original idea was to make this easy and profitable for people, no matter where they were, to invest starting in Israel, but ultimately around the world. And this is, you know, we've stayed true to that vision. And it turns out we've gotten a huge set of tailwinds by the growth of unicorns, right? Now today, back, you know, when we started, there were not 600 private companies worth, you know, a, a billion dollars or more with about 10% of them being in Israel or being run by Israelis. So, you know, this has created a huge demand where people say, wait a minute, I love companies like Airbnb or DoorDash or Lemonade or Beyond Meat, but I don't want to invest in them when they go public because they're now, you know, at tens of billions of dollars in some cases. I want to invest early when I can get in at $10 million or $20 million of value and get that 
you know, potential 1,000 times, uh, uh, in, you know, appreciation. Now, that happens very, very seldomly, but there are really good returns for people, especially who build smart portfolios. And we uh, try and I think succeed to a large degree, at least based on our track record in our crowd of giving people access to not just reasonable deals or good deals, but some of the best deals out there, you know, example being Beyond Meat and Lemonade and some of the new companies that we're investing in, which I think will be the future, you know, top performers in the public markets when they go public. Right. I mean, you talk a lot about the the companies that have obviously been successful um, for our crowd and its investors, whether it's uh, Beyond Meat or uh, or others. Uh, but but I mean, can you? What well, one thing that I've always struggled with is is not being able to see right. This is our crowd. They've invested X amount of money. This is what their return has been. This is what they've made their average investor who's put in you know a million dollars or or five million dollars. Can you share any of that? Because it's one thing to say, yeah, we invested in um, Beyond Meat, and you know we got five x or whatever the case may be. Um, but that doesn't say what someone who put you know ten thousand dollars into it via your platform came out with. So can you shed any light on, on that kind of return? It's easy to talk about individual deals. So for example, you know those who came in on our first round that we invested at Lemonade made you know close to 10 times the money with us uh, on that investment and, and beyond meet your spot on in terms of you know something close to five times the money um, but it really depends on what uh, portfolio you're building or what fund instrument you're buying so we have a fund called OC50 which actually takes 50 of our companies and bundles them together and uh, we're now in our fourth uh, instance or fourth edition of this fund product. And the first one, which we launched in 2017, is doing very, very well. Um, In fact, if you look at uh, a critical uh, metric, which people track on these funds called DPI, which stands for uh, uh, distributed uh, capital as a function of paid in capital, meaning uh, how much money have you returned to people based on what they've, you know, given you, um, we're in the top quartile performance there uh, relative to other venture funds. And that's as described by Cambridge Associates. We're actually ahead of the top quartile. I think we're approaching top decile. So, uh, you know, these things change as, as things go public. But in that 50 company portfolio, we've already had six exits. And uh, that, you know, portfolio was set up in again, 2017, with the last money coming in in 2018. So in, in general, we've been good and we had failures and mistakes. You betcha. Okay, venture capital in Hebrew language is actually translated as hon sikun, which means danger capital. You know, Israel's known for its lack of tact and directness, uh, sometimes to a fault. And uh, uh, at least about venture, they're right. I mean, I think when you talk about venture capital, in English, it has a sort of a Disneyland kind of uh, patina about it's going to be a fun ride, uh, an adventure. Uh, not in Hebrew. Uh, so it, what's what's uh, what John? What's what's been the worst investment from our crowd? We invested in a um, lending platform out of uh, uh, England called Borrow, where I invested with some of my friends from the days at Lending Club. That went completely, you know, uh, upside down the wrong way. And uh, we lost $6 million in that investment. Uh, and there have been, you know, plenty of others. I think about 20 
of our 240 companies where we've uh, uh, had to shut them down and lost money. Uh, but on the other hand, we've had 46 exits, the majority of them good ones. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you win here, you can win, you know, not just two times your money or three times, but you can win five and, and even in some cases right. 10 times your money. And we're hoping that in some day, you know, some of our companies will generate, you know, spectacular returns, which are, you know, 20, 30, 40 times. And they, and they cover a lot of sins. But in general, the uh, results have been very, very positive uh, for most of our investors. And we're getting better. What, what I really am proud of is that obviously we're tracking all these metrics and performance and whatnot. And uh, from year to year, I think the quality uh, of our deal flow gets better. And our deal selection and what we do in terms of following our bets, because one of the big things people need to learn about venture capital, is it's not just great to, you know, find a company like Lemonade and sit back and watch, but you got to follow, right? And so when we, uh, initially we invested in Lemonade, it was unfortunately not much more than a million dollars, but then we followed it with a $10 million check later on. And that was a really smart move. Many fintechs have, you know, faced a lot of challenges during these times, during the pandemic, obviously, you know, we've seen e-commerce booming, we've seen digitization kind of going on across the board much faster, much quicker, uh, and much more, uh, uh, you know, deeper than, than many people had expected. But some fintechs, for example, that need to get more capital in to, uh, you know, maintain their operations or to continue to grow or to raise money, you know, it's been quite challenging for them. Uh, when it comes to our crowd, have you um, found it harder to to persuade people to part with their money? Have you found it harder to find the deals that you wanted? What kind of challenges have you faced, uh, you know, in this uh, current uh, situation that we're in? Look, the current environment has been very good to us, and uh, uh, we are meeting the challenges well. Uh, what I can tell you is that from uh, 2019 to 2020, we grew our new active investors year to year. Uh, by 180%. We grew our cash raised by over 50%. So uh, yes, it's there are all kinds of difficulties. Start with the fact that you can't meet somebody face-to-face. That's a problem. But it seems as though the investor class, at least those who work with our crowd, have moved to Zoom quite readily. And uh, you know, Israel in general, by the way, the money invested here is way up. Uh, 2020, about $10 billion relative to $8 billion in uh, 2019. So we were really afraid that people wouldn't be investing because they wouldn't can't make the schlep to Israel. But that didn't work out that way. So um, we're seeing you know, both investors acting maturely and we're seeing unprecedented deal flow. Hmm. Got to tell you that some of the deals we're seeing, um, and, and it's not just because of you know, bullish markets would certainly help, right? In other words, it's 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 a wonderful thing to be running an investment platform, you know, in the biggest bull market we've ever seen. And, you know, we, we uh, are rooting for the market and hope that it stays, but we're obviously aware that, you know, this kind of intensity can't last forever. And that, you know, there'll be a time when the music stops a bit and there's corrections. And that's part of in uh, the way that, you know, venture capitalists have to live. We live with the market, but we have to see beyond the market because the kind of time frame that we're talking about, uh, unfortunately, is not a half a year or a year from now. But, you know, start with three years, five years and 10 years, because the business of building 
you know, startups, especially from the earliest stage, from seed capital and whatnot, can be a 10-year endeavor. And if you look 10 years hence, right, you're look, trying to figure out what's going to happen in, um, in 2030, I think you're going to be very, very lucky and, and, and satisfied if you've been investing in core technology. And whether that's, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, everything, or the next uh, a wave of, of food tech and ag tech, or quantum computing, or cybersecurity, or uh, sports tech, uh, you know, everything having to do with digital health and uh, healthcare, especially, you know, telemedicine, there's no question that these things are going to go up as a, a market in a big, big major way. And that's good for many, many companies. You still have to pick the right companies. You know, the the leaders take the outsized returns. But I, I, I think that we're, we're doing a good job, both thematically of picking the themes that will, you know, uh, uh, rise to the occasion over the next decade and I, and I, and I also a good job of picking the individual companies that have the teams that can build them. Uh, and when it comes to our crowd itself, uh, can you just remind us, you know, what you've raised so far and perhaps give us a, some kind of indication of, of your valuation and how business has got, are you profitable yet? Yeah, well, we actually uh, had our first profitable year this, uh, this past year. Um, we're not, we're a private company, so we don't, won't tell you exactly what our revenues are and uh, uh, how profitable we are, but what I can tell you is um, that we've, you know, I think a lot of our fundraising has been reported in the press already. We've raised over $100 million, you know, for our crowd in the aggregate since the beginning to, you know, build our company. And uh, our coffers are, are rather uh, full at the moment with a lot of resources. And especially now that uh, we had our first profitable year, we're, we're excited about the future. And... You know, we're here talking today about our crowd, and we've talked a little bit, a little bit about your journey getting here. Um, when you look back, I mean, you're talking about a lot of successes. I know it's very hard for you to even qualify a failure. To qualify, a, you know, a failure as a failure, there's always something to take out of it. But when you look back, what what would you see as your kind of um, perhaps uh, biggest uh, failures and your biggest successes? Look, you know, the biggest success is being you know, still in the game, showing up, you know, uh, 80% of success, you know, or luck is, 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 you know, staying with the game and, uh, venture capital has been a, 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 just a great way to live life. Yes, there are challenges and it's tense and intense, but what a wonderful job, right? In other words, to sit with these brilliant people who are sharing their visions of the future with you, and then you become an enabler, that's a good thing. It's a wonderful way to live life. Um, you know, what are my biggest disappointments? My biggest disappointments are that I haven't followed my instincts and I've missed a bunch of really great opportunities. Maybe the foremost was my friend, Mark Benioff, who came to me with a seed funding opportunity for Salesforce. And uh, I rejected the investment because I was being a serious venture capitalist. It was like 100 million pre and I thought that was excessive for a, uh, a seed valuation based on a, a PowerPoint, even for someone talented like Mark. Boy, was I wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there are a few more like that, you know, that uh, I, I think when you look back, it's not like I'm regretting any individual investment I made, 
but I regret some of the investments that I, I didn't make. Any and others? Re- any other Mark Benioff-like stories you can share with us? Unfortunately, a bunch. <laughs> Give us a couple more. We've got a, we've got five more minutes. Well, you know, there are companies such as, for example, Fiverr. Okay, where uh, you know today that's about a ten billion dollar Israeli unicorn, you know, decahorn, if you will. Uh, wonderful, uh, you know, guy Micha Kaufman. I backed his first company as an angel investor, and he was embarrassed because we, you know, lost my money in that investment. And I would have clearly backed him again, but he never asked me. And I was sort of embarrassed that he didn't ask me. I didn't go back and invest and miss that deal. You know, uh, there are a whole bunch of them, unfortunately, where, you know, came close to being part of a group that was buying a stake at uh, Robinhood. Okay, in the early days, didn't make that investment. I don't lose too much time with them. You know, the bottom line is that I don't really look back that much. I can, I have a friend who actually creates a uh, sort of shadow portfolio to document the ones that he, that he let get away. But uh, uh, drive you crazy, that would. It, yeah, it's a, it's, it makes for interesting reading. I'm not sure I want to, you know, dwell on it. But the, the, the reality is that um, these big heroic deals are what determine your success ultimately as a venture capitalist, I think. And um, it's important, you know, to, to make a bad investment is a, is a horrible thing to lose money. I hate it. But it, it's, it's more important to make sure that you show up when you have a shot at these, you know, monsters. Because, you know, the numbers of Salesforce kind of opportunities that come your way, you know, uh, it's a minion. It's less than ten in a in a lifetime, right? <laughs> right. And you you got to show up when when they when they when they're there. And I'm sure none of these missed opportunities hurt more than uh, telling your son not to invest in AMC before it, <laughs> <laughs> before it took off. Uh, look, John, I know you've got to go very shortly. So just one final question, which is uh, one I put to all guests on the FNTech podcast, which is, what's the weirdest or craziest thing you've built or done in your life? When I was a, a young technology person working on my first startup with my dad in, in fiber optics and optics, we were uh, asked by a group of kibbutz farmers to develop a project that would use uh, optical sort of barcode reading to read the unique patterns on cows uh, optically. So that as they were going into the barn, they would be recognized. And uh, thought this was a great project. It was actually feasible. And we called it Identicow. And uh, we started building it. And then we went into tests. But what we found was that cows are filthy. <laughs> okay, they really love schmutz and dirt. <laughs> and the problem was to get this thing to actually work. Okay, you had to like, you know, antiseptically clean them with high-powered water hoses and whatnot, or it wouldn't work. And then some other genius figured out that you could stick a little RF chip in them, problem solved, identical, never happened. Well, uh, I think I would have probably called it uh, uh, a barn code or something like that. But, uh... <laughs> Very good. Next time I'm going to come to you, Elliot, and you'll help me name some of these things. Well, look, John, I really appreciate your taking the time. Always good to speak to you. And uh, hopefully when this lockdown's over, we can uh, we can get together again. But uh, just for me to thank uh, John Medved, CEO and founder of Our Crowd. Thanks for joining us on the FN Tech podcast. It was a real pleasure, Elliot. Look forward to seeing you soon. Take care, John. Bye-bye.
You know, as an interviewee, John Medved is always good value for money, so much so that the stories just kept on coming even after we'd said goodbye, including this kind of epilogue of his decision not to invest in Salesforce's seed round. You know, it's funny that, like, Mark is a real gentleman, but I, I, I just saw him about a year and a half ago, and he comes, you know, he's like huge. He's six foot six, and he comes up, big, you know, big bear hug. He goes, Medved, how are you feeling about your decision not to invest? That's a real You know, so uh, anyway, life is life. It's all good. It's all really good. I'm still in the game. What a great way to end this week's show. So thank you, John Medved, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Program. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, at Paris Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.